0: Leslie, if you had to describe this story in one word, what would you pick?
1: Confined.
0: One thing for sure is I kind of felt like Dory from Finding Nemo, like people were just popping in and out and we're in this corridor and lost and constantly kind of forgetting what we were doing like it was a weird experience it was
1: definitely a little confusing but once i got in a little bit i decided i knew what i thought the theme of this story was and then it made perfect sense
0: all right welcome to the codex cantina where i am una and i am leslie If you are new to the Codex Cantina, we tackle some of the most important literature that has influenced even today's writers. If you're down for a conversational approach to literature, hit that subscribe button to join us.
1: And if you're a fan of the Codex Cantina like I am, you are aware they always start with the publication information. In Search of a Dignity by Clarice Lispector was first published in 1974 and was the first story in the collection, Where Were You at night? The copy we read was translated by Katrina Dodson.
0: And I saw a really good video from Katrina Dodson for people that know, you know, when we talk about Clarice here, we know that she's kind of got a different interpretation. Everybody who reads it has a different thing to say of what the story meant. And that's okay. It's it's like jazz where each performer has their own take on things. But the translator was talking about Clarice is one of those writers where you could almost reinterpret it every couple of decades because... You know, in the same way that our technology and radio frequencies get updated and we have to change our antennas and stuff, same thing with literature and how we translate it and what it means to us. And I'll I'll leave a link down below where she talks about that a little bit. But I thought that was very poignant when it comes to why do people say so many different things about Clarice? What
1: I love is what Clarice says about herself. She always felt that her writing was very clear and was not opaque at all. And I just find it interesting, like you said, having, you know, the possibility of it being retranslated every couple of years just opens the door of different interpretations and explorations by the reader. I think that helps.
0: Right. And and to her, maybe some things were more clear about why she chose sleeping pills, because she did have, you know, an addiction and even a a major traumatic event in 1966 with sleeping pills you know this was written in 74 in the 70s -hmm. there was obviously a big deal with guzmau and the expansion of brazil's international agenda i'll put some links down below depending on where you are those things obviously are going to resonate with you differently now for Mm -hmm. us what i want to kind of talk about today are some themes that seem a little bit more universal which is kind of like those feelings of progress and searching and even maybe some fame and sexuality in the story in terms of how i'm going to maybe provide some value to it and
1: i had a completely different take on what I thought the theme was. My take on it when I was reading it was this was a woman who was either suffering the onstate, the early onset of dementia or perhaps Alzheimer's. I,
0: I think I had some similar things. I wouldn't say I, I didn't go too far down that rabbit hole because I just don't know as much about it. So I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Let's do a quick plot recap and then we'll jump into some of the discussion and analysis. So for plot... I really like actually the summary from this New Yorker article that I read. It's beautiful. In the late story, In Search of Dignity, 1974, a woman becomes lost first in the endless corridors of the Marcana Stadium and later in the suddenly unrecognizable streets of Rio. That's it. (laughs) <laughs> and And that's in terms of what happens, that is a pretty good generalization as to what happens. Yes, she meets some friends that gets at home. Yes, she travels in a taxi, but in the grand scheme of things, we're dealing with a woman that is mm-hmm. lost in mm-hmm. a couple different places, and we're gonna have to assign some value to that. yeah, so for analysis, the opening on this, I was completely lost, right? I, I don't know how you felt, but it was like paragraph six before we finally got the quote, "Where could the classroom for the first session be?" Because that's where she would find the people she'd planned to meet. And I'm like, gosh, that sounds like it should have been the first sentence of the story.
1: (laughs) Well, see, when I started reading it, I thought she was having a dream or perhaps a nightmare where she was lost. I mean, I know I've had dreams before where I was lost and how upset that I was by it. And I, and it was like, when she was talking about like, how did she even get in there? And then it was like, there was this entrance made, especially for her. And she didn't realize it until she was already in there. And I'm like, is this a dream?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and self admittedly, we have quotes like where it says Senora Xavier was very inattentive. And I'm like, okay, so is she going to be admitting information? And in that same quote, it says, so then the meeting wasn't at Marcania at all. It was just nearby. Yet that little destiny of hers had wanted her to be lost in the labyrinth. And that's where we get that idea of her being in this labyrinth, trying to escape in the beginning, right?
1: Yeah. And especially when it said that the wording of, you know, her destiny. And I think... I'm just I'm gonna die on this hill that she was suffering dementia or Alzheimer's I think she realized that her memory wasn't what it was and that she was having difficulty latching on to memories and Mm -hmm. I feel like that's where she came up with that wording for that's where her destiny wanted her to be in that labyrinth like her destiny is to completely lose her Mind and herself.
0: Well, we know the narrator won't help us necessarily because we had quotes later on where she's just like, "Why didn't I think of taking a taxi?" When she literally just took a taxi to get there. Like,
1: (laughs) so the funny thing about the taxi is the first taxi she got in, that guy was lost as a goose. He was just driving in circles, which kind of reawakened her fear of when she was lost in the Macarena Stadium. I mean, she was again is there an exit am i just lost am i trapped here forever and then the taxi guy was like hey i'm new here i have no idea where i'm at you need to get another taxi
0: well and you'll notice what gender were all of these people that she was asking directions from men so you'll notice in the stadium she was following men in the taxi she was Mm -hmm. following men and clarice is very known well known for having written a lot of oppressive feminist type literature where the woman is being oppressed but it's not like she's fighting back reaching for equality it's kind of like this silent and a violent but silent admission into being in their world and trying to live by their rules but not necessarily being happy with it and that there's even a little bit of hint of that that is you know in clarice's dna's writing
1: and also another thing to notice she kept referring to what was happening to her as that
0: like the meatloaf.
1: Right. And I just, I, I, I firmly believe that she was suffering from a disease and she knew it. Maybe she didn't know what it was exactly. She just knew something was going on. And the reason why I say that is when I worked at a credit union, I worked there for a very long time. And the very first customer I ever learned their name was a lady named Mrs. Edwards. Mrs. Edwards was a retired nurse. She actually cared for patients with dementia and Alzheimer. And her husband had died years before, but the reason why she's the first person I learned their name is she walked in one day, all of my co-workers disappeared and left me stranded. So I had to wait on her. And it turns out Nobody ever bothered to get to know her. She seemed like she was very mean. You could not touch her. Now, she could touch you, but you didn't touch her. And nobody ever treated her with any kindness. And I'm just a people person, and I was determined to get to know her. And we developed a very close relationship. And as fate would have it, she got dementia. And she knew it. She self-diagnosed. And she Mm. started treating herself with all of these memory exercises And one of the things that she did, just like Senora from the story, she went to the Eudora Welty Library every week on Wednesday to attend a lecture about history, just all sorts of subjects, because she knew that was something that would help keep her mind sharp. She wrote Mm -hmm. notes, and we just developed a very good rapport over the years, and I eventually like set all her bills up on automatic pay because she would accidentally pay some twice and then not others. And, you know, the day finally came where one day I just happened to look up and she's standing in the doorway of my office. And she said, I have no idea what your name is, but I know that I trust you. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it just so no one like everything that was happening in the story brought back a specific memory of Mrs. Edwards as she was progressing through that disease. I could
0: see that how you would write it as being in a labyrinth, not being able to get to the answers of knowing someone's name uh, but yeah. knowing where you ought to go and stuff and even calling it that I think some people when they have, you know, terrible diseases or things that they don't want to talk about, they'll, they'll kind of call it that or not call it by its name to kind of almost diminish its value in our lives as we talk about it, too. So I can definitely see that angle. And one of the things that I took from this story particularly, too, was you know, this, this she, Clarice always puts a lot of the meanings of her stories very early on right? But it's always so mm-hmm. cryptic to de- to detect. And one of the ones that kind of rang true for me is this quote where she says, wasn't there an exit? Then she felt like she was in an elevator stuck between floors. Wasn't there an exit? And this mm-hmm. kind of brought out two things for me with this story. And one is the middle part, right? You know, th- she felt like she was in an elevator stuck between floors. A lot of this story involves her being stuck somewhere in between goalposts, I guess, in a sense, whether she's stuck Mm in a you know, a labyrinth, whether she's being hauled around by a taxi, whether, you know, she's looking forward to the climax of this book, but she hasn't read it. You know, you're, you're constantly stuck in the story between things, but also you'll notice even literally in the text, wasn't there an exit, last sentence, wasn't Mm -hmm. there an exit. She's sandwiching some of this meaning in between two things too. So even the story very literally is having someone stuck In the middle, an elevator stuck between floors in the writing. And it does this several times. I'll put some of the other examples up uh, on the screen here. But it's very clear that this woman is in a a transition state, if you will.
1: I think she felt trapped. That was almost, when you asked me to describe it in one word, I almost Mm. went with trapped. Because I felt like she was trapped in her own mind. She was just at the mercy of when it would kick in, like... She couldn't remember why she was in the stadium in the first place, and then it kicked in. Uh, oh, yeah, that lecture. It's not in the stadium. It's by the stadium. And she was just kind of at the mercy of when her mind could latch on to the correct memory of where she needed to be.
0: I could see that. And also a the, the idea of fatalism and determinism, the idea that you can't get out of that state as well. You're You're trapped. I think that kind of ties in. All of this ties into eventually you'll notice – She has a lot of uh, references to a particular plant and season in the story. Did you notice that?
1: I did. I did. So...
0: So for readers out there, let's let's walk through this a little bit. Very late in her life, Clarice became much more spiritual. You know, it started out uh, atheist isn't the right word, but I've used that word before because it's the closest to get to it. But she was always searching for God, and if you've read her biography by Benjamin Moser, you'll see that it was it was a journey for her, and it wasn't necessarily a straight line. There's ups and valleys and peaks and hills and stuff like that on this journey. But this is later in her life, where she was much closer to saying that she believed and could prove that there was a God in her life, right? And in this story, we have a quote, From the outside, she saw in the mirror, she was a dried-up thing like a dried fig. But on the inside, she wasn't shriveled. So a very famous passage is when Jesus came to curse this fig tree in Mark. It's also in Matthew. But we have, The next day, as they are leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf... He went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. And this, I think, is one of those, one of those stories that I think a lot of people when they're reading the Bible are like, what? like, why are we, why are we cursing <laughs> a fig tree sense. not in season? It's like, wh- it's it's not apparent, right? I wouldn't say it makes no sense. I would say it's not apparent, right?
1: Yeah, there's always, there's always a lesson to be learned.
0: Yeah, and I think that's kind of a, a way a lot of the Bible is structured too, is for you to uncover some of the truth in the same way that we're uncovering truths with this Clarice story as well. The general concept from a biblical standpoint is that you should be producing fruit for the kingdom of heaven. You should be practicing faith. You should be practicing good Christian ideals, et cetera, et cetera. And if you're not doing that, you're a fig tree that's out of season, not producing, should be done away with so that we can bring in, you know, fig trees that would produce is, you know, and I I know it's interpreted a lot of different ways, but let's just start with that one for this conversation. Okay.
1: Prune the dead tree. Well, no, it was more like prune the dead branches or the dead leaves.
0: Yeah. Making way for fruitful activity to, to take its New place. Christ. Right. Right. Yep. So, so people should be finding their spirituality and we have quotes in this story where they say, there she was trapped in desire out of season, like the summer day in midwinter trapped in the tangle of pass of the passages of Marcania, trapped in the fatal secret of old women. And I think this is where, Okay, so we've we've made that jump to say that this is kind of like a, a parable from that story of mm-hmm. w- what are you producing? When are you in a season? When are you out of season? Is kind of where we need to take this. And I couldn't help but kind of maybe tie this a little bit with all these references to fate and fatalism and how the men are the one that she's getting these directions from or trapped in a labyrinth, That I couldn't help but maybe tie maybe some of this fruitfulness and the, and the concept of men and being led down a labyrinth together. What was your takeaway with these?
1: I think, I don't know if we ever discussed her age, but she is 70 years old. I think as she has realized that whether it be her inattentiveness or that she maybe is suffering the onset of dementia, she realizes her life has progressed. It's mm-hmm. definitely closer to the end, and mm-hmm. she's perhaps looking back on her life and feeling that she's got nothing to show for it, even though she and just no control over time and the passage of time and what it's doing to her body. She doesn't feel that she is, on the inside, she feels that she's still young. But on the outside, the appearance, she doesn't. She looks old, dried up. And
0: mm-hmm. We have the quote, and everything out of season, fruit out of season? Why hadn't other old women warned her? that this could happen up till the end. In old men, she'd certainly witnessed leering glances, but not in old women. Out of season. So again, she's taking the out of season sandwich and crushing in between it. You know, as she's approaching the end of her life, we've had this dementia or Alzheimer's concepts potentially come in. Again, not... I'm not classifying anyone, but this is, you know, literature, 2D characters that we're trying to extract value out of, right? That that right. those could be those reminders, to your point, as she's getting older, that she's no longer producing fruit. She's no longer creating the fruit for this world. I don't think necessarily from a biblical standpoint, but she's thinking it from like a figurative standpoint of what is my value now to this world, I think is kind of one of the things that she's questioning, And I think that comes down to her maybe even questioning a little bit of a, what is her value or output of fruitfulness to humanity?
1: I think part of what she felt during this story, where she kept making the references of there not being an exit, she felt stuck. Maybe with the conflicting emotions of the the whole out of season and the difference between old men and old women that she didn't know about. I think she felt stuck, maybe not sure how to proceed. Like Also, you're mentioning between trapped between the elevator floors, the transitioning. And I think, you know, just looking back on her life, there was a part mentioned where she finally did make it to her apartment and she passed by the maid and just kind of dismissed her. So she mm-hmm. sounds like a woman with money. Her husband was traveling, so she's there alone. And I think maybe she just kind of finally drew attention to the fact of I'm always alone. There's, Mm. there's no one around her ever in this story, except for strangers.
0: You're right. She, and she never really connects with them either. It's not like she's truly connecting with these taxi drivers or this man that was bothered to help her out of the stadium or her friends that are like, do you need me to call you a taxi to get you out of here? We see that she's constantly never able to make those connections to that point. And, And it leads up to this last line of the story This was when Senora Jorge B. Xavier abruptly doubled over the sink as if about to vomit up her guts and interrupted her life with an earth-shattering silence. There must be an exit!
1: (laughs) (laughs) I totally imagined that like in a Mortal Kombat way when I read
0: that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it speaks to what you're talking about, too, where maybe she is looking for that escape or that finality of just like, look, this is no longer me in my era of being in season. It's time for me to find my exit. What that exit is, I don't know, but it could be rather fatal being drawn or escaping. I don't think it's necessarily escaping man's, you know, the whole masculinity, femininity thing is there, but I don't know if that's the main point behind this woman's strategy. Yeah. Uh, sense. You know,
1: after talking it through with you, I'm almost feeling like the theme is regret because she came across mm-hmm. as she had always been really independent and self reliant because she was mentioning when she was at home in her apartment that with willpower, you can accomplish anything. And I Mm -hmm. wonder if that was just her mantra throughout her life with willpower. I can do this because it's just like Mrs. Edwards. When she knew she was entering the early stages of dementia, she was determined to treat herself, which was not good down the road. And so I wonder if Senora felt the same way. She knew something was wrong. Maybe not exactly what but she felt with willpower, I can beat this. I can I can accomplish anything and I can keep going forward. I don't need help. And so now I'm just kind of wondering if I'm changing my mind. Maybe the theme was a little bit about regret.
0: I think, I think we do have a little bit of regret of what happened during the, the fruitful season. Because mm-hmm. to me, I think she regrets. I mean, when you don't have, I mean, in literature, it means something when you don't have friends. Like in real life, you could not have friends because of circumstances and stuff like that. But in literature, usually authors will make people who don't have friends mean something. And Mm -hmm. I think she's, she's questioning the validity of her own humanity in a sense here when, you know, the men are just telling her what to do and she's unable to escape this labyrinth, what we call life.
1: Hmm. That's what I love about Clarice Lispector. She as like, I know you've read a lot of her work. I know you've read a lot more than me, but the, Main character in her stories are usually housewives. Mm -hmm. Normal, ordinary, approachable people. But what she does is what I call the Batman effect. Where she, you know, Bruce Wayne was not a super, you know, he did not have any superpowers. He just had a lot of money for nice toys. And so Clarice makes her housewives with the Batman effect she always has them. These stories, while they have maybe sometimes what you would think a simple theme to it, she just makes them so intense. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was reading this story, every time the senora was lost and she just got that fear of, I'm not going to get out of here. I'm, I'm never going to find my way out. I'm just going to give up. Like, t- that just kind of got my blood pumping, like, got my, like, oh my gosh, what's gonna happen? And that's what I love about Clarissa Spector. She just takes these simple people and just wraps them in a just amazing story that makes you think. And while I will read it, and sometimes I have an immediate reaction, like this is what I think, But as I think about it, I will a lot of times change my mind. And even though I read this one a couple of weeks ago, I never changed my mind what I thought this was about until we talked it out just now. (laughs) And that's what I love about her. And I think that's what just makes her timeless.
0: Absolutely. And I think, you know, to Katrina Dodson's idea of having to update it every so often, I think hopefully these conversations can help other people out there to maybe see things differently or experience things or extract things out that they hadn't, um, hadn't entered into their experience sphere I guess in a sense when reading it mm-hmm. so if you're down for Clarice Lispector talks like this you know we're going to have a playlist down below where we've had plenty of talks about Clarice and we ain't stopping anytime soon because we love her here on this channel let's move into our wrap-up and ratings Leslie what are you going to give this one?
1: Oh, so I really enjoyed it this is my favorite short story I've read by her this month i'm gonna go with i'm gonna give her 8.5 for sure
0: okay okay i think this is a very fun story i enjoy the biblical tie-in for me that gave me a little bit of value i would say maybe like a 7.5 for me i don't think this is my favorite clarice story but definitely enjoyed it and that number is really meaningless i think to to you if you if your are clarice's yeah. every story is a 10 for you it's a 10 right it's just um for followers of this channel it'll make more sense what that means so Guys, if you enjoyed today's talk, head over to Leslie's channel, The Nerdy Narrative. Subscribe to her. Watch her videos. Comment, like, subscribe. She's an awesome person and really enjoys great works of literature and and books out there. Guys, we push push videos out every Monday and Thursday. Make sure you hit that subscribe button to join us on on the journey. Una out. See ya.